Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. You're listening to Griefcast with me, Carrie Ad Lloyd. Griefcast is a place to talk, share and laugh about the peculiar human process of death and grief. Each week I talk to a different person about their experiences of grief and death as we remember someone that they have lost along the way. Whether it was a long time ago or you've just joined the club. Welcome to Griefcast. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey Griefsters, welcome to season eight of the Griefcast. I am staggered that we've made it here really. I, I, when I started in 2016, I wasn't sure if anyone would want to hear chats about death as much as I did, but um, I was very much proved wrong. So if you've been listening to the beginning, thank you so much for being here. And if you've just joined us, hello, welcome. Welcome to the club. Uh, it is uh, not a great place to be in the club, but as ever we say on the show, you are not alone. There is more of us here than you think, and um, we are all here to help each other by sharing our stories, uh, whether that's on the show or on our Twitter and Instagram at the Griefcast, or just sharing an episode with each other. Um, as you can hear, I've got a bit of a cold. <laughs> Sorry about that. It's not the COVIDs, guys. It's not the COVIDs. It's just a cold. Um, but I just wanted to say welcome and thank you so much for being here. This week's episode is the incredibly talented Alan Davis. You know who Alan Davis is, of course you do. He's a stand-up actor, writer, he's had an incredible career over many decades. Uh, He's on QI, he was at Jonathan Creek, Uh, he has his own show, Alan Davis, as yet untitled, and he is the author of a book that came out last year that is out in paperback now called Just Ignore Him. Uh, Alan came in to talk to me about his mum, who passed away when he was six years old. But I just want to give a, a little trigger warning about this episode, because what happened to Alan in his childhood, we do go into in this episode, and we have his talk of sexual abuse as well. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Who are we remembering today? Who would you like to talk about? Well, when it comes to grief... The most dominant and important story of grief in my life is losing my mother when I was six. Mm. But having said that, in recent years, I've started losing people that I know, you know. Yeah, yeah. And um, there was a friend of mine, there's a guy called Richard Preddy, who was a writer. I was at university with him. And we used to kick around together. We did a course called Radio Drama, where we were supposed to study radio dramas and make radio dramas. It wasn't very well run, of course. <laughs> but he and his friend Gary Howe used to get hold of the reel-to-reel and cut together hilarious noises, yeah, really, yeah. <laughs> yeah. sounds and editing things. And, and I used to knock around with them, and we used to talk about doing comedy together. And then uh, the, what they wanted to do was The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy yeah. straight away. Yeah, you yeah. know, They wanted to go in at the top level... <laughs> <laughs> Quite one uh, of the most famous pieces of like mainstream yeah, science like, fiction. What you need first, yeah. Gary and Richard, <laughs> is a brilliant idea yeah. that everyone thinks, oh, why didn't I think of that before? Yeah, yeah. And then off you go. Create your characters. But anyway, we they did eventually become comedy writers and they've written for lots of stuff over the years. But Richard was married to a girl called Julia who was also at university. And she passed away in her early 50s quite unexpectedly. Yeah. And um, I hadn't seen him for ages. They they both came to my 50th birthday party, which was five years ago. And I got in touch with him. And I said, how are you? And he goes, I'm shit. (laughs) And I said, yeah. Um, Anyway, we talked a bit and we talked a bit and we we kept in touch on the phone. And uh, my book, um, 
I was working on at the time and I sent him a draft of it, which he read and he gave me some nice feedback because he's very, very clever and kind. And then the next thing I heard, he was in hospital, and the next thing I heard, he died as well. Oh, God. And I don't really quite know what went on. I think he had a cardiac arrest, and I think COVID was involved in the hospital at the time. Virtually everyone who went to hospital seemed to contract COVID. And he was gone. Uh, Then I had another friend a couple of years ago committed suicide, having left cryptic messages on Facebook referencing the lead singer of Joy Division and other suicide-related things. And uh, he was he was 58. Richard, I think, was 53 or 4. So suddenly people around, mm. around me, and also people that weren't particularly my friends, but people that I'd worked with a lot, you know, who had suddenly... I'm thinking of Jeremy Hardy or yeah. Felix Dexter. I was greatly fond of Caroline Ahern. We were all really sad. This was years ago now, but when Linda Smith died, mm. and you start to you start to sort of notice around you things are thinning out a little bit, and I think it's something that comes in your fifties. I'm told that once you get through your fifties, people just cruise through their sixties; they almost <laughs> never die. <laughs> and then, then it the seventies—that's pretty choppy yeah. waters. <laughs> yeah, really, you could go any day. But yeah, yeah. I, how do you? Because in so obviously it's interesting when you have a grief very young. So obviously you were much younger than me, but that sort of um, sort of the door opening quite young of like, oh, I see people can die, and then having something much later. Like, are you finding what? Yeah, what's your grief like with your your friends dying? Are you sort of much more like, oh, yeah, or I knew this people died because of what happened to my parent, or is it more like, is it does it feel a bit like it's affecting you differently because they are like you, you know, that age bracket, and you sort of start thinking about your own mortality? Yes, no, it's not connected to uh, my experience with my mum dying. It's just something where you think you think that always think that life's going to get easier. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Oh, it's tricky at the moment. Yeah. But then when I'm older, it'll be plain yeah. sailing. Yeah, I'll yeah. just be able to watch Sky Sports and. <laughs> to sit about do what I want go to anywhere I want yeah. oh people keep dying oh that person's sick oh my back's in spasm and I can't get off the floor <laughs> oh oh um, no the kids my kids crying oh yeah, no yeah. Well, my wife's really gone off me <laughs> oh no <laughs> I do, yeah I just wondering like, uh, just a kind of constant yeah. and then you die I mean it never stops yeah. being a ball ache <laughs> <laughs> yeah that is the fucker isn't it it really is people dying is a real ball it's terrible when you're an adult and they're an adult you could just think oh that's not fair a friend of mine died she was 49 her name was Jill Jill Bucknell and she was a fellow student with me at Loughton College with a further education between 1982 and 1984 we studied media studies together and I loved it and it was doing that that got me into drama Mm. that got me into comedy got me into doing a drama degree and got me into doing comedy and she was a mature student because she was 23. <laughs> and I was 16, and at the moment, and so we spent two years together. There's nine of us on this course. She was brilliant. I mean, really a great person. And then she spent her career working in the charity sector and in the later years working, um, helping offenders in prisons. So people on long sentences or life sentences, many of whom had done bad things, but... Um, she worked for a charity that worked with them. So I thought she, her life was one of complete self-sacrifice. And she died of cancer at 49. And I went to see her in a hospital. She's a tiny little woman anyway. And so, but cancer, as you know, yeah. it does reduce you physically. And she was really just bones. And she goes, I'm not even fucking 50, Al. It's not fair. I said, it isn't fair. It's quite wrong. But we had a laugh. Somehow we had a laugh at the bedside, you know. And her partner then emailed me as he went out of the room for a bit. Take a break, really. And emailed me and said, I could hear you two laughing and it was really nice, you know. Um, But, oh, God, that's, you know, the absolute idiots who are still alive, old idiots, (laughs) elderly idiots, still causing trouble. Why don't you get it, you know? I know. Verity Lambert was a great friend. Verity Lambert produced Jonathan Creek. 
she was a fearsome woman and a brilliant woman. And she became a friend of mine. She took over producing Jonathan Creek on series two. She produced the first series of Doctor Who in her 20s. Wow. In a world that was entirely dominated by men. Yeah, I mean, yeah. really off the charts. Yeah, yeah, Doctor Who especially. White men, as far as I could see. <laughs> I mean, if you can imagine it being worse than it is. Today. <laughs> um, made a name for herself, made a career for herself and took care of me as her leading man in a kind of old school way. Yeah. And one time she took me to the Wolsey restaurant. It's a very fancy, very nice restaurant on Piccadilly. And, and it's beloved of the media set. It's quite near to where BAFTA is. Yeah, yeah. So it kind of makes sense. And she looked across the room and she said, oh, there's David Putnam. There's, the Lord, there's Lord Putnam and he's sitting with Dickie Attenborough. She goes, I'll introduce you. I thought, oh, shit, don't introduce <laughs> No, no, don't do that. No, I don't want to talk to them. Let's just look at them. I'm a stupid comedian from Essex. I don't know. Um, and she took me over and, and Dickie Attenborough said, have we met before? And I said, no, no, we haven't met before. He goes, well, that's absolutely disgraceful. <laughs> <laughs> Which really tickled me. Yeah, yeah, it is Dickie. They were it very is. sweet. And then we sat down again. And then, and then she um, went and got breast cancer, mm. which she'd had before. And survived. And David Bremwick, who wrote all of Jonathan Creek and created Jonathan Creek, he rang me and he said, you're going to have to go now if you want to see her. It's that bad. And she was in a hospital in London and I went as quickly as I could and I got there and her assistant, who was really looked after all her affairs, she had no family, said, I can't let you in to see her, Alan. I can't let you in. It's too terrible. And I thought, please let me in. Um, She said, I can't. Uh, so I wrote a note to Verity saying how much I loved her and I'm so sorry this was happening and it just was shit and not fair. And and she said, oh, I read your note to Verity. I read your note. And then they asked me to do it. She asked me to do a eulogy at the funeral, which is the only time I've ever done that. Oh, really? Yeah. Because stand-ups often, often have done eulogies because people sort of think, well, this will... They can do it. They can public speak. They might make a joke. <laughs> well, I think that's true, actually. Yeah, and, and similarly with best man. When I thought who's going to be best man at my wedding, I asked Bill Bailey to do it, <laughs> not just because he's an old friend, but because I knew that he knows what's needed here yeah, is yeah. a tight ten. Yeah, yeah, that's nice. <laughs> a nice tight ten. Don't go over. <laughs> Don't make it an Edinburgh hour. Just really tight ten. Get on, get Never off. has it been more true yeah. that you need to leave them wanting more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so how was so that? So I did this eulogy. Well, it was difficult, but I, I, I made some jokes. I remember her. we hired someone who had a dog that was supposed to be vicious, and the dog wasn't vicious. It was supposed to attack me, as Jonathan Creek was Jack Russell, and it just sort of wandered around the kitchen sniffing the cupboards. Yeah. And Verity it quickly gave an example of the sort of behaviour she was expecting from the dog <laughs> in the way she went about the dog's handler who had promised it could be vicious on command. Right? And, of course, everybody in the funeral was familiar with Verity and found that very amusing. So that was all fine. And then there was a very, very long wake and hardly anything to eat. And I got terribly upset, drunk, and came out there at two o'clock in the morning. And then some some bloke on the street was abusive to me. And I went and bit him on the ear. Is that what happened? That was that night when I bit someone on the ear. And oh that my God. Is, remains on my uh, Wikipedia page as one of the significant <laughs> events of my career. Because I, I, I remember really, that. I, when I got home, I said, okay, I think I've done something terrible. Oh it's no. <laughs> Oh my what have I done? Alan. I really I was so I went over to have a go at him, shout in his ear, but he was still shouting and other people were shouting and then I don't know what happened, I was the red mist came down and I was drunk <laughs> and you know I was grief stricken and I was in all kinds of different things and, and I did a terrible thing and I thought I was gonna be in really big trouble. I expected he was gonna I didn't know what was gonna happen. I didn't know if, if he was hurt or not hurt yeah, because, yeah. you know, it was very, it was all over in a few yeah. seconds. Yeah. And then, uh, then, and then the, the papers started coming. He went to the papers because he thought uh, if he'd yeah, get yeah. money. So he's, so the mirror doorstep me, and they said, "Is this?" They had a grainy v- image from a CCTV camera, and they you know, couldn't identify anyone. 
And this, this bloke says, you've bitten him on the ear. I said, I'm not going to give you any comment about that. What do you want me to say? I'm not going to say anything to you. What, are you going to run this? And he said, yeah, we're going to run it. I said, what are you going to put? And he goes, we're going to put Jonathan Creep bites Tramp's ear. <laughs> and I, I did what you did. I laughed, right? Because that's a and very I said, funny you must not, You must not put in your article that I, when you said that, I laughed. You mustn't put that. That would be unfair. And then, of course, he put Jonathan Creek, uh, Jonathan and Davis laughed uproariously when told what the headline would be. I mean, it's a very, so, it's a very funny headline. Just because it, <laughs> there's no pun, it's just fact. It's just Jonathan fact. Creek bites traps. It, like that is the fact, but it's also like lots of skewed facts. Alan, that's so bizarre because obviously I, I now know you a little bit from doing QI. But when I, you know, when I was younger, obviously you were just a very famous person that I knew of, and I remember that ear incident so well because it was everywhere. Because it was very, everyone was like, "What a strange thing to do." He's not known for doing this, and he's not like famous for falling out of clubs. But now you tell me that, I'm like, "Of course you fucking bit is it? You just been at a funeral? You were absolutely wet. like everything in your world was." The thing I hated the most about it was it was the Groucho Club. <laughs> Which is a place, it's just, no, I don't go no, to places yeah. like that. It's just not my sort of thing at all. I've never been a, a media cokehead, you know, I'm just not my not my bag. They caught and you so on a grief forever. day. And then the next time I went to the Groucho Club, which is I went to see a play, and um, I can't remember who I was with. Oh, John Gordon Sinclair oh, and yeah, I had done yeah. a television programme together, and we became good friends. He's a great guy. And we went to see, I think it was Jane Horrocks in a play. Anyway... The, the bin men are here, in case you wonder what that noise is. <laughs> um, anyway, what happened was we go to the Groucho Club. I think Martin Clunes was there as well. And and in we go, and they wouldn't let me in. <laughs> I said, and the guy said, what you did <laughs> to that man was disgraceful. I said, yeah, but he called me a see you next Tuesday. I was very upset. It was a difficult... I didn't mean... I was an accident. I, just, I wasn't even there, you know, really... <laughs> You don't, you don't understand the deep personal shame that I feel about letting oh my myself God. down in that in that way. It's been all over the tabloids, and now you're saying I can't have a drink with Jane Horrocks. <laughs> <laughs> That's my punishment. My life is being deeply affected here, deeply. Yeah. This is this. I is, want to have a drink with Bubble. This is discrimination. <laughs> with Bubble and Gregory, Gregory's girl, not Gregory's, Gregory's girl. girry's girl, Gregory. and Oh my god, and men behaving Doc badly. Martin, the lot, you've got the nineties lot. Everybody was there ready. BBC <laughs> one greats. And who was the one? Who was the disgraced one? The one they all had to go, oh god, it was awkward uh, at the Groucho the other night. We were with, with that ear biter uh, from that thing in the windmill. Oh my god, we couldn't let Alan in. But I re- I do obviously, obviously, you feel bad about it. It's not we go we don't condone biting ears, it's a terrible thing. But any grief stirs, we call them on the show. Anyone who's been in that situation, who's been to a terrible funeral, who's got dropped, knows that, like, that is a, you are, can see your side of the argument. Like, you feel bad about it, it's awful. But yeah, when you are in the depths of horrible, horrible grief, weird stuff happens. And I can really imagine that feeling of waking up and being like, oh God, like, the grief, the grief monster hit me. Like, I wasn't behaving in a way that is acceptable. The grief monster hit me so hard. And I do think... When you when you ask me, and it's not something I've thought about before, how the, my reaction to my mother dying and the, that long period of grieving that was unkind of dealt with, there was a lot of bad behaviour, anger, you know, arguments in the house, bickering with siblings, yeah. um, conflict in the house, still unresolved. I mean, my brother hasn't spoken to me since we were teenagers, and and. Um, even after I wrote my book about my father's abuse of me, about the everything that went on, there's still no contact, really. My sister said I shouldn't have written the book, and my brother, there's no contact at all. So it's, it feels, to me, all very connected to all the way back yeah. to the death, death of my, brother, my mother from leukaemia in 1972. And, and I think a lot, and I carried a lot of resentment and anger, and I was... You know, I was, I still do, yeah. really, and and I think you could possibly find a tiny thread back from yeah. to the kid who di- who lost his mum to the kid to the the bloke on the street outside yeah. outside the Groucher Club who suddenly lashed out at someone in the most bizarre way. And, and um, well, I think when grief 
when grief lands it's on grief. you when you're young, your I mean your reaction is often confused because you're young and you don't understand, and and I, yeah like <clears throat> so when my dad died I was furious I was I went straight to anger, and mm. I'm I'm very lucky especially after reading your book, that my mum and my brother really, you know, they're quite <laughs> passive people. So they were very supportive and very kind and very like, oh God, she's quite angry. So nobody really fueled any fire, which was hard because I wanted to fight. But I definitely, that is always my go-to is like, why the fuck? Like, it's not fair, that kind of childish fury, which I think is really understandable because when you are young, it, it doesn't make sense. You know, when you're an adult, you can say, oh... It doesn't make sense, but I understand humans are frail and this is what happens. But when you're a child, it just, it seems like the most unfair thing has has happened, you know? So it, I think it, I have a slight theory, which I've invented really, but um, I feel like, because it happened to me, I got very frozen as a 15 year old. So when I'm backed into a corner, I'm quite bad. I react like a 15 year old girl. Like I, it's kind of my go-to. So then I'm wondering like, well, you know, obviously it's COD psychology, but what you're saying as well, like, your reaction as an angry six-year-old boy feels like it's not fair. Like that's a familiar place you go to quite quickly, perhaps when it comes to grief. I think that's quite perspicacious, Carrie. Ed. And and uh, small children do bite one another. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah, that's true. We might be yeah. we might be onto something, but I think it's certainly. I mean, it's a it's a truth in. Uh, psychotherapy and in psychology that you can suffer stunted emotional growth and that yeah. can be um can be impacted certainly by trauma mm. there's certainly if you experience a significant trauma at age six or 11 or 12 or 15 when you're not fully grown uh, you're not fully emotionally developed it's going to have an impact massively on your emotional development and it's going to be a go-to place it's going to be a the place that you return to when something happens, it's it's possible that behaviours you exhibited then will reappear. It's, it's, and it makes sense when you think of it like that. Yeah, and I often find, that's when I know I'm quite bad. When I hear myself and I think, oh my God, I sound like... When the kind of real teenage tone comes out, I think, oh, I'm not okay today, am I? Like that when I get right back there. Um, so you said, so your mum died of leukaemia, mm -hmm. 1972. So, uh, you know, I've spoken to a lot of people who lost parents then and it really wasn't the time for communication especially with children so would you mind just talking a little bit about that like did you you knew that she was sick what happened like was it a long process of illness or um I'll try and do this briefly there's a lot in my book about it yeah yeah but it was a very uh, to my mind people who felt they were doing the right thing were doing just terrible things yeah and what I mean by that is people tried to protect everybody from the illness. Tried to protect my mum by not mm. telling her she was terminally ill and also giving her the impression that there may be there may be light at the end of the tunnel so that she was in a kind of happier state of mind. Mm. So the, the intention being that she shouldn't go into a terrible spiral of anxiety about not seeing her children growing up and what have you. And... The kids weren't told that she was terminally ill, so there was no opportunity for any kind of reconciliation with that while she was alive, any kind of conversations or mementos or letters written or mm. do this and be like that and remember this and do this in your life and I'll always be with you or anything, you know. Uh, there was absolutely nothing. And then after she died, my it was my grandmother, my father's mother, who decided that the best way to deal with this situation was least said soonest mended and that became I read that in your book and I was like a catchphrase like <laughs> my mum's from Essex and is full of strange Essex East End sayings you know all sorts mm. it's not his fault it's where his mother put his hat on is what you say when someone looks funny <laughs> <laughs> it's not his fault it's where his mum put his hat on but um <laughs> she's full of them but when I read least said soonest I was like, I haven't heard that from my lot, my Essex gang. And I was like, that to me has no logic to it at all. No. Like... No. Well, I don't think it's an Essex one. I think it's a general one. Yeah. I mean, I say in my book, it's not something you see written on the wall at a funeral parlour. No. It's not conventional wisdom after a bereavement. It's very It may be, you know, listen, sometimes you, you might hear people say, I'll leave it. I'll don't bring that up now. Yeah. <laughs> you know... 
or let sleep, yeah, let sleeping dogs lie or something. But, yeah, exactly. But, but it doesn't apply in this no. in this instance. But that was what happened. So we there was no conversation about her. In fact, we didn't even know where she was buried, and so I had to go and look for her. When I was sixteen, I went to look for her grave. Yeah, I found um, that really powerful in the book. Really powerful. I, I'm let's say the book is incredible, and I think especially if you have lost a parent young it's very relatable but I I really really felt for you because so many of those markers that can help a child were just not there so things like being told going to the funeral having objects knowing where they are like just those things that allow a child to be like oh okay I can process it were just denied to you and your siblings and I just really felt for you because I, I mean, I'm not surprised you felt furious because who, who anybody would be an adult would be, you know, if you said to a, a grown man, oh, well, you're someone you love has died. I'm not going to tell you where. And I didn't tell you they're dying. You'd be furious. <laughs> like that's such a, a fair reaction. And um, I do think with anger and grief, it's this really odd thing that it should be present. It is infuriating that people die and, and then people just try and squash that anger a lot of the time as if it's inappropriate. Whereas, of course, you were angry. I think that there was a real, certainly for my father, a real desire that in his life he should never see anyone crying yeah. ever under any circumstances. It's mad, isn't it? And so funerals should be set up so that people don't cry. There should be no tears. I, I cried once when he came to tell me that she died. Uh, I was on my own. He did it individually. Yeah, you said that in the book. I thought that is mm. so. It was never any collective feeling that we've all lost our mum. Yeah, and so it was a, a case of be brave and and uh, once I cried once, that was it. Ugh. Um, I, I it was catastrophically mishandled. I, I wrote I write about it in the book really to try and set down a record of what happened and a record of her because she was a special person and and um, my memories of her and much of my thinking of her is influenced by my own parenting yeah. and having children now, seeing my boy now, my youngest, who really looks like me. And there's a picture of me when I was three and I think, oh my God, that's, my, <laughs> that's him. And uh, he's coming up to the age yeah. that she was, you know, so I, I tried to have a, a, a record of it. I, um, my sister said to me, oh, you're, you're, um, you're writing about people who don't have a right to reply. I, I thought, well, this, isn't, this is not a reason to not. Mm. This is my story. I'm discussing my mother and I want to tell my story. And as far as everything else concerns, you know, I defend the right of any, all and any survivors to tell their story in any way they see fit. And I am really... Now, at this point in my life, the thing that enrages me the most is the attempt to silence mm. survivors. It makes me furious. Yeah. You know? And also the hint that there might be another side to the story. There might be another side to this, actually. Mm. We just don't know. Well, that's, that's not acceptable. But, yeah, we lost her, and I went to look for her grave, and it wasn't there. And I knew that she was in Harlow, in Essex and I had a friend from Harlow coincidentally lived had the crematorium and cemetery at the end of his road and he took me up there and we looked for her and we found her in the book of remembrance and that was how I knew she was there and that was how I found out that she was cremated and I was told that there's a there's a wood at the back where there are ashes urns buried or some with markers and, and there was nothing and years later I managed to ask my father uh, his brother's funeral and he said the uh, the crematorium buried the ashes and he'd wanted to scatter them in Epping Forest because she was a big lover of the forest but they'd buried them and I and I when I thought about it afterwards I thought this hasn't happened to you mm. you know this isn't someone hasn't done this to you there's a lot more around this that you're not saying and given that there were three children did you not think of some stone or some pot in the ground yeah. or some plaque on a post or a bench or some so I don't know actually if my siblings have ever been up there some years as you know some years <coughs> the anniversary comes and goes yeah. and you don't notice it mm. um, I, th I think the one year when I it, the 20th anniversary I went up there with my then girlfriend and I was just was a blubbing wreck yeah. and I remember the 30th anniversary 
I was doing a play at the Edinburgh Festival in which I played a young man who cares for an elderly woman and then she dies. And the final shot in the play is he's sitting on a chair holding an urn with ashes in it. And they had this kind of reducing spotlight Mm. coming down and down and down and down and down and down and and then to black, you know. And uh, it was a very good production of this play. We took it into the West End and they changed a load of things and ruined it, which I'm very embittered about. (laughs) But at the festival, it was just a one-act play with this... So I, so I was this, and I remember the anniversary, and I'm holding these ashes, and it's just tears are just running down my face, and then the lights went to black, and then there's this enormous ovation, <laughs> terrific applause for his audience, and the lights came on again, and uh, my co-star in the play comes out, and we take a bow, and I'm having to, this is so weird, yeah, this is really, that's really because strange. My, because the the grief of my mum has not entered my working life yeah. in fact my whole working life my entire career is an enormous edifice erected to um hide everything behind it you know? yeah yeah <laughs> i can understand <laughs> i find yeah. it's interesting i found 20 years extremely difficult and it hit me like out of nowhere because i i kind of i think i remember like 16 17 18 19 being like oh yeah sad isn't it yeah you know these things happen and you know okay day happened you're a bit blue but or you think about it but you carry on 20 I was like mental from February from February it felt like it was walking towards me this like giant numbers like you know yellow submarine beetle style just this two and the zero like getting closer and closer and on the day I was a wreck an absolute wreck and I I do think there's something sort of like I mean, I haven't, I haven't got to 30. Like, I think there's something weirdly human about recognising a big number, you know? Like, it, it just suddenly, it, especially, I guess, with a parent that you've lost, you can really look, look how much they've missed. Look at what's happened. And it's a life, isn't it? It's a real life you're looking at rather than, oh, you know, seven years or, I don't know, 16 years. Okay, I can kind of throw that away. But, yeah, I think 20 and maybe, obviously, I haven't experienced 30 kind of give you this they, they, you can't hide. That's what I felt. You couldn't, I couldn't run from it. I was like, oh, I have to really look at this now. You can't. It stays with you. Mm. Next year's the fiftieth for me. Oh. It's just there, always yeah. there. It stays with you. But I talk to my kids. You know, my kids are eleven, ten, and five. I was taking them to their swimming lesson yesterday, and the five-year-old's going. So your mum died when she was thirty-eight. I say, yes, that's right. And what does she die of? Leukemia. And then what's leukemia? Oh, it's in the blood and in the bones. And and so I want to have the door open for them to ask those questions. You know, Uh, I haven't taken them up to the graveyard because there's nothing there. But next year, my intention is to finally get around to putting some kind of a a plaque up. You know, last year we had Giles Brandreth came on QI and... uh, I talked about, there was a thing on the episode about unmarked graves. It was quite interesting, as you would expect. (laughs) (laughs) An interesting thing about unmarked graves. And then I said on the programme, I was asked a couple of questions and couldn't find any humour in it, you know, and I said, I'm sorry about this, my mum was buried in an unmarked grave and I just can't. Yeah. And so uh, Giles talked to me afterwards and he said, you should put something, you should make something, you should create something. Um, That's... He's a quite. A, he's quite a sort of a you should person, Charles. You know, you should do this. You should. He should do that, and they should do that. You know, he knows what's what. But he. It was well meant, and and uh, and he was. And I said, you know what? It's funny you should say that, but I have been thinking of that exactly that. I think that's a beautiful idea. Um, I think that's just a, really just something simple. And yeah. then we can, then I can take the kids and say, this is where. Yeah, your grandma. This is where your granny yeah. is. There's the plaque. Instead of taking them there and saying, this is where your granny is there's nada yeah but also i think (laughs) it's so for me that's so so beautiful because what you didn't get was the rituals and i think it's easy sometimes when when it happened to you when you're young to feel a bit like oh the adults didn't do a thing so what 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 can i do you know because you always feel a bit like the child in the situation which you know again hence why Mm. people end up in comedy because you're childish and silly and um (laughs) And I think that's really nice because it kind of gives you back that control of like, yeah, you didn't get a ritual, but you can do a ritual and you can make that marker and you can 
you know put back what should have what should have been because yeah I think it's so important to have a have a place yeah we we spread my my dad was Welsh and we spread his ashes like you know in this nice bit of Wales that he liked going to and so I don't have anywhere to go to and when I speak to people with graves I think oh a grave sounds nice (laughs) um, but I do I do sort of know yeah you know there is that place there is that country that he grew up in that I could be and when I am when I do get there I sort of even though everyone who lived there is dead now not all the Welsh people, the families. Um, <laughs> oh, yes, I'd like to say yeah. there are many, many, many Welsh people. Who are alive. <laughs> very alive. Very alive, very alive and kicking. But I feel like there is somewhere I can go to. And also, like, you know, my mum still lives in the house that we grew up in. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to Griefcast with Carrie Ad Lloyd. I think you need that. You need that with your grief to have somewhere to kind of anchor it, isn't it? Because especially when you're a kid and you do feel the description we've said a lot on the show is the old magician tablecloth trick. You know, like someone's mm. just whipped it from under you and everything is in the same place, sort of, but not really. And you know something massive has happened, but everyone's kind of expecting you to carry on as if it hasn't. And so to kind of gain, yeah, gain back that control, I think that's a really lovely idea. Yeah, it'd be nice. I see with my mum, it was a case, it was almost like your mum's in this room here. She's going to be here for a while. You can go in for a bit. You can't go in today. You can go in. Now you can go in. Now, she's not in that room anymore. What? What's happened? Oh, God. Why didn't you? Yeah, tell me. And then my sister was three and they said to me, age six, you mustn't tell your sister. That your mum's died. I mean, that's just... So he was. So my sister was saying to me, when can we go and see mummy? Mm. Um, when you have a three-year-old. Yeah, yeah, I know. Um, the, the ridiculousness of trying to, you know, the persistence yeah, of the questions yeah. and, the, and, the, and the, trying to understand. So I had to manage that for a little bit. Which, be, to be placed on it's your insane. head at six is like yeah. fucking... Yeah, and, it's, and it became what? quite, quite. Oh yes, well I know this. Yeah, and you don't, yeah. You know, it's a, it became a childish one-upmanship. Of course, thing. because the adults had made you feel like you had a job to do that was very important, a grown-up thing to do. So when you're six, you think, oh right, that's oh I'm being good. Tick, I'll get a star for this. But to put that yeah. pressure on a well, child. That's interesting you say that because what happened then subsequently was because you have one parent, mm. and there's a, you're 
children, as I'm finding myself, will play one parent off against the other yeah. routinely. Yeah. If, 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 if you say to one parent, can I have a Jaffa cake? And they say no, they just go and ask the, the other one. one. And the then walk touch. past you eating a Jaffa cake in a really taunting way. Yes. Mummy said I could have the Jaffa cake. <laughs> so, but when you've got one parent, you just have to please this one parent. Yeah. And, and they have an enormous amount of power. And they really, with that power comes great responsibility. And that was where my father let me and my siblings down. Because he, he didn't take, it didn't exercise his power carefully or correctly. No, I think what I you know, and I do recommend people read the book. It's 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 an amazingly honest, beautiful, but raw book. Because what happened to you, as you mentioned earlier, you know that he the abuse then started with your father. I oh, Alan, I just yeah, it was a terrible yeah, thing. Terrible. I found actually speaking of reading. Uh, Reading in the Dark by Seamus Dean. I don't know if you've ever read it. No. I think it won the Booker in the 90s. I wrote this chapter that's in my book when I was at Goldsmiths doing an MA in creative writing called Hands. It was about my father's hands. And it was the first chapter I wrote and it was the first time I'd written about what happened and I submitted it anonymously as part of my master's course. That was the first time I was able to get that mm. out of me. And and uh, I talked about it in therapy, but... And my tutor, Ardu Vakil, who's a, a writer, said, have you read Reading the Dark? Because there's a chapter in that called Feet. And I wondered if that was what I did, if that had influenced you. And I said, no, I hadn't, but I'd like to read it. And in Feet, there's a boy under a table. And I think he's got a dog with him. It's a kitchen table, a small kitchen. And around him are lots and lots and lots of feet, lots of feet. And the reason there are so many feet in the kitchen is because his little sister, who I think is three or four, has died. Mm. And they're coming to take her away. And then all the feet gradually leave the room and then there are two pairs of feet left. It's his mum and his dad and the feet come together and stay together for quite a long time in total silence. I mean, it's extraordinary yeah, writing. Yeah. And then later on, he writes about Graveyard his mam, his mammy loses it a bit, sends him out to get flowers in the dead of winter when there aren't any, you know, and he has to pinch some dead ones off other graves. And then he says in the book that the little girl only came back once. She only came back once. It was when I went to the graveyard to get the flowers and I saw her. Oh. I saw her in the graveyard and she was a little way away and she looked at me. And he goes back, he runs back and he tells his older brother, I saw her, I saw her in the graveyard. She was there. And it's just all, all around, it's an Irish, set in Ireland, well, it's not set in Ireland, it's an Irish book. It's based on elements of his life. Um, there's this feeling of connection with the other side mm. of, you know, in a deeply Catholic country about people, the significance of the next life and, so it's all present in the air, mm. you know. There's the idea that this is possible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he goes back to say, I want, I want to tell, I want to tell Mammy, I want to tell Mammy, I saw her, I saw her. And his brother says, don't you dare, don't you dare say a word to her. She's already losing the plot, <laughs> sending you to collect flowers in the dead of winter. Yeah. Don't you dare say a word. But it's a, it's a beautiful book. It's a wonderful bit of writing. Well, I mean, that, yeah, that chapter that you wrote, Hans, has really stayed with me. Like, I really, I did find that, yeah, I guess it's it's hard not to feel when, you know, when you're in the club of losing, and obviously I was much older than you, but to know how vulnerable a kid is at that situation and then to know what, you know, like you said, the abuse of power that happened, just really, yeah, I just really feel for you. And I can understand wanting to write it down. I, I'm writing a book at the moment about, based on stuff from the podcast and obviously based on my experiences of grief, and um, there's some things that just sort of need to be put down. And I can understand, like, it's hard with siblings. It's hard. I have an older brother. And, you know, what I've learned, you know, you grieve completely differently. And you were parented completely differently, even if you're brought up in the same house. Like, they have very different experiences of that person. And especially any age gap. You know, he's four years older than me. So when our dad died, you know, I was 15, he was 19. Like, that's a completely different perspective on everything. And especially what happened with your dad, the way he separated you all and the horrible manipulation. Like, it's, 
yeah you you like you said you have to tell all you can do is tell your story that's all you can do like yeah i really had to because it was really just inside me yeah. you know like a tumor yeah, or something yeah. uh, it was just there it's it was blocking me from doing any other writing yeah. i often get asked why don't you write a sitcom or why don't you write a script or why don't you write and i have done some writing in my career and written some radio stuff and enjoyed it and written lots of stand-up of course but to get set down and create something was impossible yeah. because there was just this one story to tell all the time. Up first and thing, I, yeah. So I had to get this out and tell it, and also in the hope that an awareness that it be, it would be helpful to other people. Yeah, definitely. That people have t- had experiences all around. We all do. Mm. Everybody has a story. It's my the way I put it, and so sharing the stories and is this the only way that they become of any use or value mm. you know there's no point burying them no not at all and I, um, I can really relate to that when you've got a trauma and it's you know wrapped up in grief it it if you don't deal with it it just leaks out of everything else that's what happened to me with my my comedy saying that to you I was proper comedian but like when I first started doing character stuff like every character had some dad that wasn't there (laughs) like everybody and then it took me ages to to even see it that there were all these characters that had this fucked up relationship or this person wasn't there and then eventually um when I got pregnant with my first child I just suddenly realized like oh there's so much grief I can't keep it up I can't keep pretending to put on you know, a stupid costume, a funny hat and put lipstick all over my face and like be like, oh, I'm not really talking about my dead dad. And I was like, just talk about it. And that's when I started the podcast. And yeah, I couldn't believe how much I needed to talk about it, how much it just kept coming out. Like you said, like it just, a compulsion almost. It wasn't, I didn't feel like I had much choice about what I wanted to talk about. It just kept, I needed to, which I think often Mm. happens when you, when you've lost someone younger because you, you didn't have a vocabulary then. Your friends didn't get it. People didn't really want to hear like the depth of your mm. pain because they're kids and they're like, all right, okay, anyway. <laughs> like They don't know what to say. So you, you've had to store it up for a long time. Yeah, that's, that's certainly true. I've got a friend at the moment who's having a bad time. He's 58. He lost his father when he was 12. Mm. And his father was someone he really looked up to. He was an only child. He... He said to me recently he was my best friend mm. and, and I, he was a strong figure. He worked in the NHS. He worked as a mid, delivered a lot of babies. Wow. And uh, so he knew a lot of people in the community, you know. Became very, very ill, was in hospital for months, came out of hospital, went back into hospital. This is all when he's 9, 10, 11. Mm. And then eventually at 12 he died and I was emailing an old friend of his. I'm trying to help him at the moment. I was emailing an old friend of his the other day to say this is happening with him at the moment to say, you know, and he said, I remember when his dad died, all his hair fell out. Wow. And I thought, holy shit, that is extreme. Yeah. And then he lived with his mum and lived with his mum and then lived around the corner from his mum and then moved in with his mum while she was ill and then cared for her the last four years of her life. And then um, she died and then he really, I think, just descended into alcoholism and drug addiction a few years after she passed. And it's coming out of that. Yeah, yeah. And I'm trying to sort of help him a bit with his flat and stuff because it got in a bit of a mess. But it's all um, evidently connected up to the grief from the 12 year old boy that's just lurking and and there and then and then compounded by the grief from 10 years ago when his mother because his mother died in the 80s this is normal yeah sometimes people just this hits you a bit like a big wave on the beach that was a big wave but this is what we expected we knew this was going to happen now we have to sort her things out there's a grave that's she's done she's finished she's at peace she's at rest it's better this way yeah and you can come to terms with the end of a long life. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's still painful and sad, and you still miss the person, but it feels right, you know? Yeah, the right so order of things. It's the order of things. It's the seasons. Yeah. It's the life, you know. But still, it hit him extra, extra, extra hard yeah. because of the connect to the, the, the grief of the 12-year-old boy that's still there. So just like a 
I liken it to the silt on the bottom of a riverbank. Yeah. You know, something gets kicked up, and cause one minute the water's clear, and the next minute it's yeah. you can't see anything. Or what's happened? Something right down there's been kicked up, and now everything's a mess. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's hard, you know. You, you can't see anything. You hold on to this. It's it's hard and. <laughs> I think especially if it wasn't dealt with very well at the time or, you know, you haven't found your way to therapy since then. Like there are ways, you know, it doesn't it doesn't have to define your whole life, but it's a pain that you have to carry for a long time. You know, it is. And I think sometimes that's hard for people to understand if they haven't lost someone young because they sort of think, oh, but, oh, you're still sad. But isn't the hardest thing, the hardest thing seems to be for him and for lots of people just to pick the phone up yeah. and to ring mind or one of the many charities that deal what we're talking about here is 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 now now being referred to often as mental health yeah this is what we're talking about it's your it's your mental well-being and if you're if it's unresolved or undealt with it's gonna get you yeah you can't beat it it's gonna get you so you're gonna have to find someone to talk to and find a way of dealing with it even if it's writing things down every morning like some people do Mm. if it's if it's talking to people who work for charities like mind if it's going if you can afford to go to a weekly therapy do it's gonna get you (laughs) you can't it's not a question of being tough no, because no. Because as you know, yeah. it comes out. This is the most peculiar place. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, it, that's why I always think it leaks. It's like a really weird tap that's dripping for so long. Like the leaks come. You're like, where's that come from? Like it's like, oh my god, that's way up in the attic. Didn't know that pipe was up there. Like it, it will just yes, find its it way like out. That. We had that torrential uh, downpour, that monsoon yeah. rain a couple of weeks ago, and our house sprung several leaks. <laughs> that were really weird yeah but it's like that because and I think you're right we we have such a hangover of of thinking the way to survive it is to be strong and that equals not dealing with it and and especially with men especially with men you know of yeah a certain age who grew up in that era where it was about being tough and masculinity was not crying and not not being affected and they will not pick the phone up they will not we had a thing, you know, we used to film QI at the London studios on the South Bank, much missed. Yeah. And they had a, a week there of a kind of mental health awareness raising week, men's mental health, where they were focusing on suicides. And uh, they had 84 mannequins on the roof. It was quite striking because if it caught your eye, you thought there are several jumpers yeah, up there. Yeah, yeah. Oh, they're not, I get it. It's a thing. They're doing a thing. Yeah. They're saying 84 men kill themselves every week. I think it was. But there's a real thing, I suppose, men in their 50s who don't have all the family network around them, or even some that do, you know, responsibilities at work or raising children or elderly parents to care for or whatever it is that keeps you busy so that you don't collapse. People, Some people like my friend, just live on their own with no job and no living relatives. And then they just implode over and over and over and over again. And there's nowhere... He was being pursued by the council for unpaid council tax and in the block he lived in for unpaid management fees going back eight years. He had a pile of posts that was summons and warnings and debt collection agencies and we are bailiffs and we have visited you today and uh, and i had to recently open it all and try and sift through it and i rang i got in touch with lambeth council safeguarding i was told that if you think someone's a suicide risk you should dial 999 immediately Uh, otherwise you need to get in touch with a local council safeguarding unit because it's their responsibility yeah to look after people who live in their borough who may be at risk at risk from the thing we're talking about the thing inside them the thing that's just eating them up that might take them down they're at risk you're not necessarily just at risk in a hellish situation like a domestic abuse situation you can be at risk from your own head yeah Yeah. Yeah. and I said this guy is I think at risk why is it that the council on the on the one hand, I've been after him, yeah. threatening for him for years and years and years, and are now instigating repossession order on his flat, uh, so he'll be homeless. 
and on, but the other end of the council, no one, no red light ever comes on and says, this guy hasn't paid council tax for eight years. Yeah. He's ignoring all the court summons. He also hasn't paid any income tax since the year dot. Is he even alive? Yeah. What's going on with him? Do you think we should send someone? Do you think he's all right? Yeah. No, they've got you flagged as a criminal. This is criminal behaviour dealt with by the courts. That's easy. But why can't the two ends of the council connect yeah. up? Why this this kind of this kind of catastrophic decline? So they were going to take his flat and have him on the street. At which point he would then be on them, yeah, yeah. right? As a homeless person in the borough. So anyway, it's kind of I, I, uh, it's relevant to this podcast is because I think it's. But the root of it all is his grief over losing his father. Yeah, absolutely. Um, absolutely. And I, and I, you know, as I said, I speak to a lot of people and I, I suppose a good thing is the younger people I speak to are so much more open to talking about it, to going to therapy. It does, you know, it has changed. But the older people I speak to are still fighting, like you said, that ability of, what therapy means, that it's a weakness, thinking you should hold this stuff together. So I think we are moving in the right direction, even though it's slow and obviously not everybody is caught up in that that wave of it being a good thing to, de- to do. And, you know, the other thing, there's a really a lovely comedian performer called Jack Rook who he lost his dad at um, 15. He came on the show and he lost a friend to suicide and he was saying, you know, it's all very well, hashtag mental health, we're all talking about it, but when there's no funding, <laughs> when councils have no funding, you know, mm. it's like stripped of their funding, stripped of their grassroots schemes, all of that thing. It doesn't, it's meaningless that we're all willing to talk about it. If it, when you go to the doctors, they're like, well, there's a three year wait and no one can help you. Oh, absolutely. <clears throat> they're, they're absolutely social ser- services and mental health services and the councils are absolutely at full stretch yeah. years ago, long yeah. before the pandemic. And I do think it's interesting you're saying, because I think sometimes people put grief in a slightly different pot of like oh that's grief and like you said it, it it is actually it's mental health and if you if you don't deal with your grief it yeah you know also I've heard of people's I've heard hair falling out I've heard people turning hair white going overnight mm-hmm. you know and I the reason I went to therapy is I went to my GP and I was like oh my hair's falling out and my gums won't stop bleeding <laughs> and he was like are you stressed and I was like what do you mean am I stressed? Like, I'm preparing for Edinburgh. Like, yeah, of course I'm stressed. <laughs> like, no more, right? And that was the first person who was said to me, you know, maybe this isn't about these physical problems. When did you go to therapy? Because I know you do talk about that. Did it take, it took you a long time to get there? Joe Brand told me to go. Really? Yeah. <laughs> she pretty much told me to go. She said, have you ever thought about seeing anyone? <laughs> this was when I was talking to her about the latest catastrophic relationship collapse <laughs> so you won't be surprised to hear that all of my intimate relationships were blighted by the uh, loss of my mother 86 yeah yeah of course and it was actually someone she knew she recommended me to but I had a similar thing with a GP because I was getting eczema on my hands and lack of sleep and just a few physical symptoms the GP started to in the 90s, ask you how you were, oh, yeah. instead of just giving you penicillin, which is what they used to do, or <laughs> chop your tonsils out. How things? How are you in yourself? Do you drink a lot? How do you live with, you know? So you're on your own, you, you drink every day, but you live on your own. You know? Okay. Okay. So- <laughs> okay, just going to make a quick call. No, you don't worry, you stay where you are. Just going to, a couple of just, notes. It only takes about probably 10 questions yeah, to get yeah. quite far into somebody, doesn't it? But yeah, I started, I went to therapy for about eight years on and off in, through my thir- 30s mm. and I found it really invaluable, but still it wasn't enough yeah. for me to, I had to, did some work to do. The, the writing of my book and the setting, I wrote a book 10 years ago, which was about growing up, in which I didn't mention what happened with my father. And, and and I remember my father holding that book in his hand and saying, oh, I'm a bit worried about how I might come across. And I, I remember thinking then, don't worry, I've protected you again. Um, but this time I didn't. I sent him the book. I sent it to the home that he lives in because he's got Alzheimer's now. But I don't know if he got it or not. Did you, if I made this up, that you wrote, but you can't remember her voice? Yes, yeah, because I right. had that as well. Sorry to feel like mm. bringing up something painful, but that's why I, I've completely forgotten his voice. 
because you just do over time, obviously. And um... but I tell you what's odd about that, Carrie. I watched a <laughs> film the other day, a very odd film. I couldn't get through it. But it's about a, a man who's lost his wife and he's got recordings of mm. her and he's trying to generate through um, cinema science a robot that right, with her yeah. memories in that will talk to him. But he keeps looking at this video of her. And you see this quite often, don't you, in television and films, uh, bereaved people looking at tapes. Yeah. And there is now so much footage yeah, of each, yeah. everybody. And actually, I'm not absolutely certain that I would want that. No, it's really... I, you know. we, we talk about the show that uh, we, I would describe me and you as analogue grievers, in that right. we don't have a plethora of stuff. And post-2000, everyone is a digital griever. So I've interviewed guests who are like... They've got a photo of them on their phone. They've got voicemails. They've got emails. They've got texts. They can look at their Twitter. And, you know, I probably seem to you, there's a, some photos. There's one VHS of him go-karting at my brother's birthday, but we only got it transferred like two years ago. And even then, obviously, no one's filming the man they think is going to die. They're just filming 18-year-old boys going around a track in Watford. <laughs> like, So <laughs> it's not the like, yeah, these, that romantic Hollywood notion of like, that clip of them over and over saying, I love you, I love you. You're like, you don't have that, you know, when you're an analogue griever, you have to, like, bits of tat that are suddenly really important to you. No. But having said all of that, when I think about, well, what a writing exercise this would be, when I think about what she may have said, mm. had she been able to record something on an iPhone yeah. when she thought, lying there one night, I, think, I don't think I'm going to be alive in the morning. Mm. I'm going to record something. Uh, what she may have said to whether she'd have done one message to all of us or individual messages to her three children or who knows who knows I know it's it's <clears throat> I don't think either is, is one is better than the other I'm, I've been writing about it a lot this analog digital I think it's just different and I think when you when you have analog it it means you can't torture yourself because to get the memory is often difficult like it's often in an attic you have to get the ladder out. Do you know what I mean? It's like, it's not like in your hand. Whereas the digital grievers, mm. what I've noticed is they can just keep going to it. And that's what's hard is they have to sometimes go, I can't look at their Instagram today. Like I need to not do that, but they're on their phone anyway. So I think it's, yeah, you know, they, they both offer different, different problems. But my therapist said something that really stayed with me when I finally admitted that I couldn't remember his voice, which I felt really ashamed about. I felt like I'd let him down somehow, you know, but you're 15 fuck's sake you know like of course you can't and yeah she she said to me you know you do still have that you've got the you know the memory of them or what they might have said to you because you know that they loved you and I think that's the only thing I've sort of got comfort of when you start moving further and further away that you did that you did know that they loved you like you you know you that chapter you wrote about her is so beautiful about her hands and her tickling you and tucking you in and all of that stuff well the thing I thought was significant for me was I know that bad memories stay with you you know moments I think that's my own children if I've shouted at them or meted out some terrible injustice upon them that they will remember it forever and I'm always saying to them I'm sorry I shouted you I remember my daughter saying oh god you're always saying that (laughs) (laughs) But I don't have any of those memories of my mother. Yeah. I don't have any memories of her being annoyed or angry or upset with me. And so I choose to believe that she ne- never was. <laughs> or if she was, it was to such a small degree that it didn't impact yeah, that yeah. much more. What I feel when I think of her is a kind of a companionship that we kind of kicked around together. She was doing stuff and I was nearby. Yeah. Um it, there was no cloying, no baby voices, no none. It wasn't that sort of parenting. Yeah, it was just you're here now, and we do these now. We're going to do this together. We're going to do that together, and that's what would be nice. Would have been nice, yeah. you know. Um, but it's a funny thing, Carrie, and you can't have regrets about it because. Some people do bad things to you in your life. And that's You have to deal with those. 
but your life pans out the way it pans out and you are where you are in your life because of a myriad yeah. myriad things and when i get to this point in my life even though i had an appalling dream last night in which katie had affairs with two men <laughs> <laughs> Really. Oh, outrageous. I, I, I mean, I woke up and I nearly had a go at her. I said, who was the bloke with the dark hair? <laughs> Apparently you've got a kid with him from before me. This is all completely yeah. made up in my mad head. <laughs> but where I am with my children and where my work and my, my life, everything's got to here. Mm. And it's fragile and constructed and but it's safe and I don't want to change anything yeah so that means you can't change anything behind yeah. you we've all seen back to the future <laughs> you can't change anything behind you yeah uh, I regret being taken out of primary school after year five so missing year six I still regret that especially now and perhaps I'm thinking about that now because my daughter's just finished year six my little boy's just going into year six they're the age I was when this mistake happened but if I hadn't done that perhaps I wouldn't have gone to college I wouldn't have met my friend Jill yeah. all the other friends I met I wouldn't have gone here there wouldn't have met Richard Preddy wouldn't have I know you have to you know. it, you, if you if you can look at your patch of ground now and love it it helps because you couldn't go well I really like this I really like where I got to and all those things help me get here and yeah some of them were awful but I wouldn't be here without them you wouldn't be without them and today's the first day of your rest of your life and all that jam. <laughs> Alan, thank you so much for talking to me. It was it was so brilliant. The book is is absolutely incredible and I would really recommend it. And um, yeah, thank you very much for yeah, remembering a lot of people today. Thank you. Alan's new book, Just Ignore Him, is published by Abacus and is out in paperback now. You can follow him on Twitter at Alan Davies One. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at The Griefcast. The show was edited by Kate Holland. The music was provided by The Glue Ensemble. It was recorded remotely, still doing remotely, uh, from my house and Alan's house. And remember, you are not alone. Thank you so much for listening all the way to the end of the first episode back of Season 8. I'm much appreciated. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.